views expressed are not endorsed by the United States Department of Defense or its components. Alrighty, welcome back to the Flyover Podcast as part of USAFA Aviation. I'm your host, John Costello, and with me, I have my co-host, Jack Ramshaw. And today we have the privilege of having Lieutenant Colonel Ryan Rudder, an A-10 Warthog pilot and the current Air Officer Commanding of Cadet Squadron 9. Um, Colonel Rudder, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. Uh, it is a cool opportunity to do this podcast. We've talked about it for a while. Uh, get more information out there about different airframes and perspectives and, and flying stories, man. What's not to like about that? So super cool to be interviewed by one of my Vikings. And Jack, oh, glad to have you joining us here as well. Excited to talk absolutely, about the hog. Absolutely. Yes, sir. So uh, could we get a brief background on your career? Yeah, sure. So let's see. I showed up here uh, as a cadet in 2004. So started basic training in 2004, graduated in 2008 uh, with the Richter class, the Carl Richter class. Uh, my wife is also a 2008 graduate. So we departed here uh, and then went to pilot training. Went to pilot training at Shepard. Um, after finishing pilot training, I was uh, selected to stay on as a T6 FAPE, so first assignment instructor pilot. So basically the first almost three years of finishing, after finishing pilot training, uh, I instructed in the T6 in Wichita Falls. My wife at that time was flying C-130s in Little Rock, uh, Arkansas. And then after my FAPE assignment, her first assignment in the C-130, we were able to uh, to rejoin in different aircraft. So I uh, was selected to fly the A-10 uh, following my FAPE tour. And she transitioned from the C-130, we call it slick C-130Js that, that focused on the tactical airlift and airdrop mission. And she moved over to the HC-130J, which is the rescue C-130, which is a cool connection. It pairs very nicely with the hog because there's two bases, Tucson, Davis-Monthan Air Force Base in Tucson, Arizona, and then Moody Air Force Base in Valdosta, Georgia, where both of those aircraft are stationed together. So really nice uh, setup for the both of us. And then about that time frame, we do uh, two assignments. I did two, in the, two assignments in the A-10 before I came here to be an AOC. So showed up here and 2020 and i'm ending my time as an ac uh, aoc i'll say slightly bittersweet you know uh, i'll be sad to to leave uh viking nine and, and and head on but it's time for us to move on to something else and so for uh, my wife and i we're going back to tucson we're going back to davis monthan and we're going to be uh do's uh director of operations in in our in our communities awesome so um what made you join the air force and did you always know you wanted to fly yeah good question um <clears throat> I think for a long time, I couldn't put my finger on it exactly. I, I thought I wanted to fly. Uh, I think part of it, too, was a calling to or an interest in military service. I had three out of four of my grandparents serve in World War II. And hearing some of their their stories and perspective, you know, kind of motivated me towards uh, towards aspects of, of that lifestyle or that service. I remember being a, a kid and... My family was driving up from New Mexico. I'm from Albuquerque, and we were driving up to northern Colorado uh, for a visit. We stopped at USAFA. I could not tell you how old I was. I was probably in elementary school. But uh, back uh, when we had a chapel that wasn't covered up, uh, you guys haven't seen that yet, have you? I haven't seen it. No, <laughs> saw normal. the outside yeah. during basic. You saw glimpses. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I remember being up there on the chapel wall visiting and, um, and hearing retreat play. And seeing the cadets all stop and, and kind of turn towards the flag and salute. And it was an interesting feeling. Like, it kind of resonated with me. There was, you know, something more here than maybe you'd find in other places. Uh, we'll say a, a, a call to service and, and some professionalism and some discipline that I think I was interested in. So 
I think when I found out, you know, I could show up here and, and, and work hard and have four years of school paid for by the government. By the way, I never say free. Nothing in life is free, right? You'll pay it back. Don't worry. Uh, but to have that uh, incredible experience and opportunity uh, paid for, have the opportunity to fly and to serve, I think it was kind of all, all came together for me. And uh, don't regret it at all. I had some doubts, and maybe we get into this later, about whether or not flying was for me <clears throat> or if I was, you know, right for flying. But looking back on my career thus far, now 15 years past graduation, very grateful, you know, that I showed up here and uh, very grateful that I, that I found my way to the A10 community. And did you think that, would you pinpoint retreat when you were on the uh, chapel wall yeah. as like the time you're like, I want to go here? Boy, I don't know. It's, it is a memory that kind of burned into my brain. You know, I think it was the first time that I was ever associated. My parents were not military. So it was the first time that I ever saw maybe up close and personal, um, you know, for me, what I considered to be or, or, or what was the, the, the military. And there was a, I'd say a draw or a calling to that. Hey, you know, um, a place where people work hard and uh, where people push each other, right? And have the opportunity to do some amazing, incredible things, whether it's here as a cadet or after you graduate. Those things were all really interesting to me. And so we'll say, yeah, we'll say that was the moment. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about you, Jack, but like my story is like, I want, knew I wanted to be in the military since third grade, but I didn't tell my parents until junior year in high school when I found this place. Yeah. So um, I don't know. Everybody has their own story and that's kind of unique. Sure. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I had some military family, but it was never really something I considered that, oh, I might want to actually do that um, until about high school where it was like, oh, this is actually... A possibility I can you know there's just an opportunity to go do some really awesome things that you can't go do anywhere else so that kind of went into the calculus of where do I want to go to college and what do I want to do with my life so yeah it's it's cool all the different ways people and those some of those motivations I think as you go along might change a little bit some of those reasons you show up here aren't necessarily the reasons that you stay or continue and those have changed for me I remember thinking I remember being a first year getting ready to graduate and go I have got my career planned out I know exactly what's going to happen what I'm going to do and like none of it has gone the way I thought it would but it's been an awesome ride and experience and I wouldn't trade it so graduated in 2008 Richter um, and you end up going to pilot training yep. and when you finally got the A10 mm -hmm. like that you were going to fly that was that your dream plane or what did you want to fly So the A10 the A10 I would say was uh, a dream plane I don't know if I if I always thought about it exclusively but I knew it was up there at the top of my list and what I always tell cadets is you know pick a pick your aircraft based on a mission and the community of people around it, right? It's really easy to, we'll say, attach yourself to a really cool, shiny, uh, you know, fast... Uh, F-22. F-22. Raptor's sick. I'd love, you know, uh, I love the, the mission of the hog, but I would love to uh, to joyride a Raptor. You know, that would be sweet. Uh, it just does things that shouldn't, shouldn't happen in flight. Um, but Pick a mission you think you're motivated towards and find a group or community uh, that you want to do it with. And I found that in the A-10. Uh, I thought that I really was interested in close air support and what I would call, like, supporting, you know, the customer service, if you will, taking care of troops on the ground, right? That is the, that is the mission of the A-10 pilot. That's why we exist. That's why we fly. That's why we train. That's what we focus on. And so... 
had that motivation early on, but then I also met people along the way, right? You meet you meet uh, instructors, whether they're your AOCs or they're your DF instructors, or someone you fly with at the airfield. You show up at pilot training. You start talking to your, your instructor pilots there, and everybody's got different stories and backgrounds, and I just found myself gravitating to uh, some of the A-10 pilots in terms of their personality and the community piece, but also the mission that they do. So uh, it was a huge draw for me. And then truly also finding out, you know, that's probably a really good match for, uh, for my wife and I in terms of how we get joined up and rejoined in different airframes and, and, and a heavy and a, and a fighter pilot. Uh, that was kind of, we'll say, what sealed the deal. Very cool. So the A-10 has been around for a long time. Yeah. Started getting designed during Vietnam. Um, started with the A-10A back in, the, I think, the 80s. Yeah, late 70s. Uh, late or 70s. Yep. Um, and it's changed a lot. So on the A-10 today, the way we use it, what's the most important weapon system? Well, this may sound a little cliche, but I don't think I'll surprise you guys when I say this. I mean, the most important weapon system is a pilot. Uh, in terms of... In terms of uh, how you manage information and sensors and, and weapons. And so I could take both of you right out today, you know, not knowing any of your flying background or experience and get the A-10 started up for you and you could go fly it and it would be easy to fly. It is, you know, it is not a challenging aircraft to fly. I think the A-10 is easier to land than the T-53 that I'm flying at the airfield right now. It's easier to land than the, than the, T6, I would say um, maybe the, the T-38 is still more difficult to land, but like it is a very forgiving aircraft and it is not extremely tasking to take it off and go point to point with it. The challenge becomes managing information that's coming in both over the radios. I mean, ten has four radios, okay? So if you can imagine that, potentially four different channels that are talking to you at the same time, uh, managing digital information that's coming in in terms of... Uh, our link, Link 16, and uh, our in our common architecture that we use to talk with it, which is the saddle radio. Managing a formation, right? Two to, to four people out there flying with you. And then that is where it gets challenging or difficult. And so the most important piece in the loop definitely is the, the, the flight lead, the pilots, um, when you're out there. What kind of have revolutionized, if we talk about technology, what revolutionized the A-10 and really what made it the A-10C that we know now um, is the targeting pod, right? So the targeting pod is awesome. Um, it lets us, if you can imagine like the world's, you know, sweetest uh, pair of binoculars that lets you really offset many, many miles from a target area, look in there, build awareness, you know, prep and plan your attack before you ever are detected or, or seen in terms of visually and audibly. It, uh, it helps us guide in smart weapons, right? So we can fire a combat laser that weapons guide to. We can fire that same laser and get really tight uh, coordinates to drop GPS uh, weapons on. At night, it's got a big old IR pointer, right? So it's just this green dot on the ground. And when you look through your NVGs, you see this green dot, right? And if I know my targeting pod is on the target and I roll in and put my gun pipper on that green dot, I'm shooting the target, even though it's pitch black at night. You know, so some really cool technology that was integrated with the, the targeting pod and, and letting us, allowing us to, to do what we call smart, you know, employ smart weapons and smart. Uh, yeah. And do you think you, the, the smart weapons are more significant than the gun it's known for? Sure. So something, you know, the A-10 is famous for the gun, right? 
Before we go any further, I brought props. Am I allowed to bring props? Yes, sir. You can show us, yeah. So I brought my uh, pubs bag. It's got a lot of different pubs in there from the A10. I'd be happy to kind of stack those up and show you. But, like, if we're talking about the hog, right, we got to talk about the gun, okay? I'll just put that on the desk there for a little bit. Uh, 30 millimeter, fired through the Gow 8, seven barrels, 4,200 rounds per minute. That's about 70 rounds a second once the gun is fully spun up. 70 rounds of 30 millimeter a second on target. Pretty incredible weapon in terms of its accuracy, but also just the devastating amount of, you know, of metal firepower that it puts on a point target. Um, you had, you know, Colonel Dietz on the first show um, and, and his background. I know that, that previously he'd, he'd been in the Strike Eagle community. I always... Uh, I appreciate those guys for some of the multi-role, uh, you know, capability they have and a lot of good friends that are Strike Eagle pilots. But I do enjoy the opportunity to give them a little bit of, throw a little bit of shade their way because I tell them, hey, I always travel with the 30 millimeter, but in case we ever need it, I've also got the, the 20 millimeter. So let me just get that real quick. I've got it right in here. There we go. Known he was going to be bring props. Like a, a there we shutdown. go. You know, uh, just a little difference, right? This is this is a fantastic air-to-air -air round, uh, 20 millimeter. But if you're trying to kill targets on the ground, right, and that's what we do in the A-10, uh, 30 millimeter would be the weapon of choice. All that being said, you asked a good question, John, which was the A-10 is kind of famous, iconic for the gun, but uh, what of these of these smart weapons? And so something that people often don't realize, I'll tell you, you know, if I if I have to kill armor, right, if armor is the target, whether that's a tank or armored personnel carrier, the, the gun is... is secondary weapon you know i would prioritize my maverick missiles uh first and foremost agm 65s uh as a as my primary weapon to kill uh armor it gives me more standoff and it has a higher pk which is probability of kill on armor but if you need to kill armor you can close in and do that with the gun there's always trade-offs though the closer you are to the target the closer you are to, to threats and people that are that are shooting at you right if you're if you're gonna if you're employing on someone else on the enemy you can expect they're looking up your way and, and returning fire. And so there's trade-offs in in proximity and range that when we talk about use, employing the gun, we gotta get close, right? But still an incredible phenomenal weapon. You know, it's the A-10's famous for it, but we bring a lot more weapons to the fight. So, you know, if I started listing some off, A-10's carrying up to 16,000 pounds uh, of munitions, right? And that could be anything from a full load of gun, which is almost 1,200 rounds of 30 millimeter. We might be shooting high explosive incendiary, if we're going against armor, armor piercing incendiary. Uh, and then this is this would just be a target practice round, like a metal slug. Uh, Maverick missiles, we've got all different types of bombs, whether it's guided or unguided. We've got GPS, uh, GPS guided munitions. We've got laser guided munitions, GPS and laser guided munitions, EB-54, which is sweet. 500 pounders, 2,000 pounders. Uh, we haven't even talked about rockets. We've got unguided rockets. We've got guided rockets. Laser-guided rockets, fellas. They're amazing. 10-pound warhead guides directly to the laser spot on the ground. Pretty incredible there. Uh, and then for, for self-defense, uh, we talk AIM-9s as well, right? So AIM-9, Sidewinder, IR, air-to-air -air missile. And... Targeting pod, ECM, jamming pod, a lot of different capabilities. And then some capabilities we're building into that we might talk about in the in the future as we as we look down the road for the A-10. Yes, sir. Um, so, you know, close air support is the A-10's mission. How is it, like, integrated into the actual ground forces? Okay. How, how between you and the guys on guys and gals on the ground, like, yeah. how is that communication? Okay. Well, what would you guess? 
What's your thought? If I had guessed there's somebody on the ground. Of course, right? So we, we're typically going to have a ground party. Sometimes it's in close proximity or embedded with the troops we're serving. Other times it might be a dislocated uh, person, but we're typically talking about a JTAC, right? Joint Terminal Attack Controller. That is a uh, that is a airman uniquely qualified and trained to control fires. And when we talk about close air support, right, the important thing is it requires a lot of planning, right? It requires a lot of communication, because it is what we call detailed integration, you know, with with fires, right? Weapon weapon employment in close proximity to the friendlies. And that requires special training and special, we'll say, lingo and procedures and checks and balances that we use to make sure that we kill the enemy and that we don't have any type of fratricide, you know, any type of uh, friendly fire. So typically we'll have a JTAC that is embedded with the unit we're supporting that's on the radio talking up to the close air support aircraft and the players up there. And you'll often hear, you might hear reference to a nine line. That's a close air support, you know, basically uh, target um, tasking or the format in which we pass information to each other. We can also do that digitally, right? So we have the, we have, we have the means to receive a digital nine line. Oftentimes though, we still do use the, the radios to back ourselves up and to confirm stuff, but it's not, Typically, you know, just a, a pickup game, there's always, if we're able to, we're going to plan it in advance. So a lot of what we do is mission planning prior to the sortie. Hey, here's where we think we're going to be tasked to. Here's the unit we're supporting. Here is the, what we call TTFACOR. So the targets, the threats, who the friendlies are. Is there artillery? You know, who has the clearance? What type of ordnance are we bringing? Are there restrictions? So we kind of organize information in that way. So when we get out there, we have maybe an 80% solution of what we expect to see. But the cool thing about CAS is it's dynamic, right? You may think you know who you were talking to and then that friendly unit changed, their position changed. Uh, there's often a lot of ambiguity, fog and friction of war, right? And that you have to sort out. And so it'll keep you on your toes. There's not a whole lot that is, you know, that can be truly pre-planned. Sir, um, and just kind of going off this close air support mission, what's the best instance of you knowing that you've made an impact on the ground from the air? Sure. Um, I deployed twice in the A-10, and the first, my wife gives me grief. She says the first one doesn't count as a deployment because we went to Eastern Europe for six months. Uh, that was following, you know, Russia's annexation of, of Crimea, and so we were, we were pushed forward as a theater security package, a TSP, to fly all around Eastern Europe. It was awesome. Great training, flew, you know, probably 12, 13 different countries all around Eastern Europe. Um, but it wasn't, and I would say fortunately, right, in many respects, it wasn't It wasn't a combat deployment. Um, my next deployment, though, was flying the A-10 out of Insulik Air Base in Turkey, right? And that was in the, in the counter-ISIS or Daesh fight. And that was flying sorties in Iraq and Syria. And so in terms of actually contributing, you know, through my training and, and uh, preparation and execution to, to uh, real life situations on the ground, that's, that was that deployment. And that was a busy deployment for the squadron. You know, we had uh, basically 12 aircraft and, you know, about twice as many pilots. And for six months, 24 uh, seven, there were A-10s, at least a two ship airborne, right? Supporting uh, troops, both, you know, US troops and coalition troops on the ground. The sortie I think of, uh, I told a story uh, on another podcast, uh, kind of AFSC podcast, that I that I reflect back on now. But for this one, 
a very memorable one to me was a sortie where we took off, um, took off in the evening as the sun was setting, had a tasking over Mosul. Uh, so we were flying over Mosul, Iraq, and working with JTACs there as we were trying to push ISIS to out, basically, or um, you know eliminate their last strongholds in Mosul. So we're trying to clear western Mosul. Spent about two to three hours there uh, overhead employing uh, multiple weapons in that um, in that fight. And then we pushed west or west towards Syria and did some more work out there. There was a lot of, um, we'll say, POL type sites, petroleum, oil, lubricant, you know, um, oil sites that ISIS was owning, maintaining, and that they were generating profits off of, revenue off of, to, to fund their their campaign. And so when and where we could find those, we would strike those. So uh, employed there in Syria as well. And then in the middle of that, as we're getting ready to go home, we're probably about five to six hours into the sortie, uh, we got a call for troops in contact in, for me, the most, the, the furthest eastern Iraq I had ever been before. And so when you talk about close air support, you know, I knew it, when we went to work that day, I knew we were going to go to Mosul. I thought we'd probably follow on into Syria. I had no idea there was going to be troops in contact in uh, in eastern Iraq. In a city, place, part of the country I had never been before. And so that requires a, a lot of what I would say uh, adaptability uh, for a dynamic situation. So we got re-rolled out there. That means re-rolling tankers and fuels and coordinating for uh, for extensions working all that piece, managing, going, hey, what weapons do we have left to actually bring to the fight? How can we best help and support? And then showing up there. And this one's interesting because I'll be honest, when we showed up for our uh, that troops in contact, the first couple minutes is going, hey, build awareness, build context, right? Where are the friendlies? First and foremost, where are the friendlies? Um, so that we so that we have information and situational awareness on they, on where they are and we can work out from that. But what it ended up being is it was kind of a sunrise-type uh, situation. Uh, ISIS had opened fire right in the early, early morning, right as the sun was uh, was rising up, and it was U.S. troops that were taking direct and indirect fire there. We showed up, built some context, and then uh, did a couple shows of force. So shows of force is basically kind of like a lower pass Um we, you'd say kicking out flares, for example, to get people's attention. And really, it's just a warning. It's like, hey, uh, boar was our call sign, right, for the A-10s during that deployment. Uh, boar, your hogs are overhead, man. And, and this is a warning. This is our one and only warning, right? Um, and so I'd sent my wingman down for that show of force while I was building awareness. And what was pretty cool you know, I wish I could tell you, hey, and then we rolled in for 10 strafing passes and cleaned off the jets and... and but we didn't. They just, we did that show of force and they said, hey, there's no more fires. We've broken contact, right? And so in a perfect situation, I'd love to tell you, hey, we struck the enemy and we took out, you know, a defensive fighting position in one of their, uh, you know, up armored vehicles or something like that. We didn't that day, but at the same time, the presence, right? And the reputation of the A-10, I would say, uh, deterred ISIS. They were like, it's probably time to go now. Yeah, you you ought to go home. Yeah, and it's real good to be talking, you know, to, to our U.S. troops on the ground uh, and checking off with them and, and just kind of a mutual respect, but also knowing, hey, uh, even if we didn't employ in this instant, we were, here, we were here to assist and help you today to make sure they stay safe and that at the end of their deployment, they go home as well. And that was a memorable sortie, too, because I was fighting to stay awake on the way home. It ended up being a 
10 and a half hour sortie. And so we, we had taken off basically as the sun was setting and it was the middle of the morning as we were getting back and that just messes with you physiologically. So 10 and a half hours in the A-10, um, I was smoked. And some of the adrenaline, right, and stress of the troops in contact, figuring out where people were at, preparing to employ if we needed to. Uh, that was a very memorable sortie. And I, and I like to think that we that we helped some of our, um, you know, our fellow uh, warriors on the ground. Yeah, that's a, that's a neat situation where you don't even have to really employ anything. Dropped a few flares, and um, it destroys the enemy morale mm-hmm. and helps out our guys on the ground. Um, so it's, it's kind of neat. You can talk about... All of the weapons you mentioned earlier, yeah. drop a JDAM or use the gun, uh, but you don't have to every time. That's true. And uh, I think that's, you know, one of the things we take pride in as A-10 pilots, right? Our, our mission is close air support. We do close air support, we do combat search and rescue, and we do FAC-A, Forward Air Control Airborne. And those are our three kind of bread and butter missions. And so I, I chuckle a little bit, you know, and this is not meant to, to be political when people say, well, it's a single mission aircraft. I'm like, hmm. Agree to disagree, right? Because no one else does the rescue mission commander role for combat search and rescue. And with the exception of, you know, a couple F-16 pilots here and there that might be qualified, really no one else does the forward air control airborne role. Um, And so I push back on that, the notion of single mission a little bit. But true, we are not an air-to-air player. I mean, I talked about carrying AIM-9s. That's self-defense, right? For ourselves, uh, the AIM-9s and the gun would be self-defense in an air-to-air role. We would never be tasked to support an an air-to-air type fight because we don't have a radar and we don't shoot radar guided missiles. Yeah. So uh, you talked a little bit about, you know, you sent your wingman down. What's the best example of leadership that you've seen in a wingman in the sky? Yeah. I'd probably correlate it to that story. And there's been many others. Um, I can think of two off the top of my head. That particular story I told you, I had a great wingman, uh, an academy, uh, buddy of mine. In fact, he'd, he'd been a fape and he'd followed me a couple years down the road to the A-10. So we knew each other at Shepard and then he showed up a couple years after I did in the A-10. Um, and in that minute, you know, when we got the tasking troops in contact for anybody in the air, it's going to get your attention. But as an A-10 pilot, we're like, okay, fight's on, you know, game time, let's go. This is what we, this is what we train to. This is what we do. And in that moment, there's a lot going through my mind as the flight lead, right? There's a lot of different things I'm trying to figure out. And it is uh, amazingly helpful and, and uh, an incredible asset to have a wingman who can see some of the the shortfalls and maybe your plan, right, uh, can back you up on certain things. I'll tell you the wingman built our whole gas plan for that troops in contact. You're like, well, what's the gas plan? I'm like, if I'm flying further east than I've ever been in Iraq, I better have my gas sorted out so that I don't run out of gas or have to divert somewhere in Iraq, right, or Turkey um, before getting back home. Rerolling tankers and assets, calling forward um, to some of the uh, controlling agencies to try to pull information, right, for us as I'm navigating and building a a basic plan and trying to talk to uh, the troops that are actually on the ground. And so being a wingman, I think there's sometimes a – this, con- this concept that, you know, and, and we've propagated it for years in the fighter community. We say, hey, your job number two is to is to be in position on the right radio, you know, and, and in the A-10, target and weapons ready, um, which is great. That is fundamentally uh, uh, an expectation for you as an A-10 pilot. But if you want to go a step further, right, 
show me your ability to be a leader as being excellent follower as a wingman, but also backing me up because there's no way I'm going to know or catch everything. I will miss stuff. And I can't tell you how many times I've had wingmen uh, in a tactful, appropriate, professional manner say, hey, one, check this, or one, confirm this. And it's just saying, hey, I, I see something different. I'm backing you up. Let's think about this one more time, right? Uh, there have definitely been instances uh, with with friends who's, who've, whose wingmans have reminded them that the artillery's hot right now. Not a good, good time to be rolling down the chute and, and employing uh, close proximity to the target when we have live rounds that are impacting, you know, so... Uh, checking the artillery, backing us up on gas, friendly location, you know, and, and movement there. All those things that keep us safe, those are examples. I, I think of another one, too. I wasn't even flying this particular one, but a really sharp wingman on this deployment who basically they were getting a target from, um, from the JTAC, and we'll say that probably some time had elapsed from the initial targeting information until it being passed to the fighters, right? But the situation had changed, and they were being told, hey, strike this building. You know, it's an ISIS stronghold. And they're looking at the, we'll say, the the behavior or the mannerisms of the people, uh, right? The what, what are the enemy combatants? They're led to believe the enemy combatants. And like, this just doesn't make sense. And I think the, the flight lead in that situation was relatively young flight lead. And so that person was leaning pretty far forward. All right, we got a target. Let's go strike it. And it was the wingman who kind of pulled them back. And they're like, hey, one, confirm uh, some of these uh, what we would call MOs, right, of or patterns of life for this target set. It just doesn't match. And it turns out as they kind of pulled back a little bit and did some confirmatory calls and comms, they found out the position that they'd been given was a, a friendly position, right? And so they had multiple friendlies on top of a building that if they hadn't slowed down and the wingman hadn't spoken up, they would have struck. Um, and you know, that's, that's the a deadly sin as a, as a close air support pilot is, is friendly fire. And so a thinking wingman, like, and a sharp professional thinking wingman is an incredible force multiplier. And we always, you know, I'll have my cadets be like, well, I don't know if I want to fly fighters. I like w working with a team or a crew. And I'm like, okay, hear me out. Every single time you fly fighters, you don't fly single ship. We don't fly combat sorties single ship. It's always formation. Why? Mutual support, right? What does number two bring? An extra set of eyes, right? Double the firepower, right? Viz, calm, firepower is what we talk about, right? And they're helping us and backing us up. And so that being said, you always want a sharp wingman. And I'll, you know, the times where I'll get after wingman is when they get complacent, right? They're just, we call water skiing kind of behind you, you know, just hanging out. I'm like, no, man, back me up, think about things. And when I'm testing new wingman, I'll say or do stuff wrong because I want them to call me out on it, right? It's kind of part of the test. Long, long answer. I hope that helped uh, clarify no, does, for you. It does. Absolutely. And so um, shifting kind of away from flying career, more to the future of the hog. Okay. Um, it's been pushed back so many times. Yeah. But when do you think the final sunset sure. will come for yeah. the A-10? I'll tell you, if, if, I knew the, if I knew the definite answer, uh, or if I think the Air Force knew the definite answer, we probably already will say have it formalized or released. Here's what I think. You know, as an A-10 pilot who loves the A-10 for its incredible capabilities as a close air support aircraft, right? You know, super biased, but I'll say there's never been a better aircraft built to do close air support, combat search and rescue, forward air control, airborne. Uh, the A-10 is going to go away, and, and sooner than later, I would say, right? Uh, for for many years, as I, was as I was showing up here to be an AOC, we were saying 2030, okay? I think that timeline's potentially even a little bit to the left, 
maybe even a, a couple years to the left, right? We are starting to retire and divest squadrons of A-10s already. Um, and it, the, the machine is moving along and the A-10 will go away. And so what will that look like? You know, conservatively, probably next five to seven years, I think we'll see a lot of our, you know, A-10 fleet uh, divested and, and, and sent to the Boneyard in Tucson, uh, which is fitting because, you know, that Tucson is also the, the mothership for the A-10. So they're kind of coming back to the mothership for that, for that bittersweet retirement. But the A-10 will go away. Um, 2030 and maybe even left of that yeah so as the a10 community is shrinking yes i mean you got to be one of the higher ranking officers in in the community like how, how the numbers behind the community like where are they at yeah that's a great question or point um it feels strange right to think that or say that but that's true there are not a lot of fgos right majors lieutenant colonels uh or 06s left in the ranks and so why is that? Well, a couple reasons. I think we've taken a lot of talent and sent them onto the F-35, which is a good thing, right? Uh, I, I miss those individuals in the community, right? But at the same time, if they can go share some close air support, combat search and rescue, FAC-A, perspective, TTPs, right? Tactics, techniques, techniques and procedures with the F-35 community, great, right? And so we are we're sending a lot of our, you know, talented instructors and also even young wingmen over the F-35. That's a natural transition. Uh, I think that for individuals in, in my position, too, I do have a lot of friends that have made the decision, hey, it's been a long, great career flying the hog, but they, you know, get out at their active duty service commitment and transition to flying the hog in the Guard or Reserve, or maybe even they go to the airlines. So other opportunities there. There aren't a lot of us left in the A-10. The A-10 was always a small community and now it feels even smaller right so it is strange and kind of funny to have your your friends now my my peers serving as the do's and the commanders i'm like wait a second when did i get old uh but i think that's also just kind of the natural progression the community will start to draw down i think what we'll do though is i think we'll keep producing uh via our b course the formal training unit we're going to keep producing a10 wingmen for this foreseeable future well why is that we need to produce fighter pilots, right? And I will tell you, for someone that's gone through the A-10B course, that transition to the F-35, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. Very different aircraft and different missions. But better than them going straight from the T-38, right? So we're going to keep using the A-10B course to produce, you know, fighter pilot wingmen that we can then transition into other communities. So as, uh, as the A-10 community moves... I guess, as, as you said, to the F-35, are there other airframes that you're also moving to? Um, are there any talks of maybe some sort of replacement at ground attack vehicle? Um, mm. I know there's been the Skywarden over in AFSOC, things yeah. like that. Um, what do you see for the future of ground attack as far as aircraft go? Ooh, good question. You guys throw me the, throw me the difficult, the challenging ones. The, the short answer is I don't know, right? And I, I don't know um, that the that institutionally as an air force we know for certain right there is no uh direct you know in the plans um one for one trade with a future aircraft in terms of close air support combat search and rescue fac a you mentioned the sky warden um interestingly enough i think as the a10s continue to divest i think there's a very strong possibility that a lot of those afsoc assets are going to flow into some of that space in Tucson. And they're already talking about building a power projection wing there with some AFSOC assets to include the, um, the, the Sky Warden. I think there will probably be some, you know, A-10 
pilots that take some of their experiences and, and TTPs from the CAST community over there. I think that more natural progression for most A-10 pilots will be to flow to the F-35. But all that being said, I think we should be really honest with ourselves and um, in the fact that there will be a gap in some close air support capabilities. Do other aircraft train to close air support? Absolutely, right? So based off of the, the wars of our last 20 years, there are a lot of Strike Eagle pilots and Viper pilots out there that are pretty good at close air support. You know, there are F-35 pilots that came from other communities that, that know some close air support. The unique capabilities of the A-10, though, are going to go away, right? And the important thing, I think, is that we just transition as much as we can of that perspective and knowledge. And what I'll say is really important, too, is a mindset, right? Is a mindset that is geared towards, you know, protecting our service members, troops on the ground uh, as as an as a extremely important part of our mission. And that's tough to do in, you know, fifth-gen advanced multi-role aircraft because they're doing so many other important missions as well. That's the challenge. Could you uh, briefly explain, so the Sky Warden, I yeah. am not super familiar, and I know there's probably a lot of people out there yeah. that aren't. Could you briefly explain what exactly the Sky Warden is? Sure, yeah. So think about, um, think about, uh, have you heard of the Sky Tractor? No, sir. Okay. Uh, so agricultural aircraft, like sprayers, right, that are spraying, uh, we'll call it pesticides on agricultural fields. Uh, if you think about a tail dragger, right, with a big old PT-6A, which is a turboprop, the same one we have in the T-6, right, with big old fat wings, kind of like the A-10, a lot of lift, can fly uh, low airspeed, and a sensor ball on it with other weapons underneath, right? Very unique looking aircraft if you get a chance to look it up. But basically, um, think about, we'll call it um, reduced We'll call it reduced threat, um, close air support, special operations support too, an airframe that can loiter for a long time, a ton of gas, very efficient on fuel, has a sensor, can pass information to special operations forces on the ground, and can even do that um, direct strike role if they're called to do that. And so, you know, what type of theaters might you find it in? You can imagine based off of that description, but it will be a... Um, AFSOC dedicated aircraft that does, we'll say, soft support, right? Special operations uh, support, and then maybe some what I would call reduced threat or low threat close air support. Yeah. Okay. So the A 10, like super ground support, was kind of a big fight against ISIS. Mm -hmm. um, but as we kind of shift away from the Middle East into more near peer or peer adversaries, yeah. such as China and Russia, to name two. Sure. Like, if a conflict were to break out, would the A-10 be leveraged, and if so, how? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and, and as you guys can imagine, right, I bring my, my lens or my bias uh, as, a, as a very proud A-10 pilot to the conversation, but I'm also not dogmatic about it in that sense. Like, I think as A-10 pilots, more than maybe other aircraft, we have to understand our limitations or weaknesses. Otherwise, we'll get punished for them, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm not that fast and I'm definitely not stealthy. And so if I disregard those facts, uh, things are gonna go poorly, right? But do I think, let's, we'll just talk about those two theaters, um, we'll say separately. 
there's there's discussion, right? Yeah, I remember, you know, a year ago we had some of those long lines of, of the Russian convoys and Russian armor that were building up and stacked up, and people were like, oh, man, every A-10 pilot, right? Uh, well, there's some truth to that, but also, like, we need to be realistic and, and pragmatic about it. Um, would an A-10, you know, two or four ship going in there, could they uh, – could they wreck some serious uh, wreck shop on on that type of convoy or formation? Absolutely, but it'd require a lot of other supporting assets. And so, I think what some people who say, "Well, the A10 is um, is is not suited," right? Is is uh, there's a word I'm looking for here? I don't know. It'll come to me later, right? Uh, the A10 is simply not built to uh, to sustain that type of conflict, that high-level conflict. Um, survivable, that's the word I was looking for, the survivability of the A-10 in question. The A-10, nor any other aircraft, no, no aircraft is going to go in by themselves. Like, right, four ship of my A-10 buddies, I'm like, let's go, just by ourselves, unalone and unafraid. We force package everything. What's force packaging? Well, think about it, right? We're stacking up different aircrafts based off of their unique assets and capabilities. Who do I want on high if I'm going in to do that air interdiction mission, you know, against Russian convoys? Well, I want Raptors, right? I want Raptors. Who do I want suppressing enemy air defenses or destroying enemy air defenses? I want the F-35, right? Uh, Who do I want, you know, in a a multi-role supporting role? vipers or strike eagles that are helping me out and then the hogs down low right getting after it man that's why it's called the warthog right low to the ground um and tearing things up down low could we force package like that i absolutely think we can the survivability in terms of how the aircraft was built is incredible multiple redundant systems right we can fly the aircraft with no hydraulics no one else can do that uh redundancy throughout we talk about the titanium bathtub too right a10s can take they were built with the idea that they're going to be low and close to the fight, and as such, they're going to take damage. And so we have that ability. One thing I'll say for armor, when we talk about armor and concerns about, um, we'll say, defending against large armor formations, there are not a lot of other aircraft or weapons in, you know, in, our, in our joint toolkit that are, we'll say, air-focused weapons that are uniquely suited to take out armor. Okay, if you want to kill armor, I'll tell you a great weapon for it. It's the AGM-65. It's the Maverick. Extremely high probability kill. Uh, a really good secondary weapon is the gun, right? But who shoots Mavericks? Well, the A-10. We can carry 10. That's a lot of Mavericks. Uh, and the F-16s, some, a couple pilots here and there that are trained on them. That's it, right? Who has the gun? Who has 30 millimeter? The A-10. And so I do think maybe sometimes when we talk about truly stopping armor, we may not have a choice. Like, we need to throw, you know, match the, the target to the weapons. And, and in that sense, uh, appropriately force package, do I think that, that A-10s could work in that AO? Um, yes. Would it be high threat? Yes. Would we expect uh, potential losses? Yes. Right? That kind of comes with the territory of near-peer competition. Uh, okay, shifting to China. Did I answer some questions yes, about Russia? Yeah. Okay, Absolutely. shifting to China real quick. Ooh, this one's tough, right? What's what's what is the problem in the South China Sea fight? Like, what is the what is the biggest maybe hurdle that we face? Lots of water, distance, man. Right, time and distance. And I'll tell you what doesn't do great with time and distance. The A10, we're not that fast, right? Uh, we bring a lot to the party, but uh, we typically, you know, we got to leave home early if we want to get there on time, or we show up late. So. 
when you think about that piece, uh, it would it would be difficult to stage the uh, the hog cl- close enough to the fight that is still safe, right? Um, in a position where it could actually be truly supportive. Do I see? Do we see the hog doing close air support? You know, uh, over. Taiwan or, or mainland China, boy, I hope not, right? Like that's that is a hotly contested in, uh, environment, and uh, we would expect attrition, right? We would expect losses there. So, what role does the A10 bring in supporting that type of fight? Because we're gonna need all hands on deck, right? If this is if this is a fight that, that came to bear, um, my thoughts on that. You know, a, a good buddy of mine from the B course has, has has done some good work along with other A10 pilots in in getting uh, the aircraft checked out to carry mauled, right? So mini- miniature air launch decoys, right? The Hawk can carry 16 mauled. That's a lot of mauled. Viper can carry four. Uh, B-52 can carry 16. So for comparison, so if you can imagine a four ship of A-10s, all of a sudden that's 64 mauled. What's mauled? Well, think about it. It's kind of like I said in the time, miniature air launch decoy, right? You drive towards the fight, launch your, your decoys, and then turn out. And all of a sudden the enemy has a targeting, um, a tactical problem related to targeting. 64 new uh, contacts on the scope, right? What's real, what's not? What's a fighter a bomber and what's a decoy? And all of a sudden now we're disrupting some of their ability to accurately and effectively target, or maybe we just have them waste some of their munitions, right? If, if the A-10 could bring that to bear to help other fighters that are pushing closer in because of their low observability, right? Great, how do we be part of the team? How can we be helpful? What, el- what else is the A-10 good at? We're good at combat search and rescue. And so staging and, and kind of helping on the outer edges of the fight with combat search and rescue, we can do that too. We train to that all the time. So those are some things too. The other last piece I'll say is that the A-10s have been doing agile combat employment for years, right? Like it's the new hotness in the, in the Air Force in the last couple of years, ace, we got to do ace. I'm like, that's we've always done ace in the A-10. We've always been kind of the redhead stepchild. We never have, you know, the money and resources uh, that we want. You know, the aircraft was built to take off and land on on dirt, right? Or very, uh, we'll call it rudimentary landing surfaces. Uh, we're comfortable being kind of pushed out off to the side and, and, and trying to self, you know, sustain. And so this ACE concept is, is part of a close air support mindset too, right? Make it work. Do the best with what you got. And so we, I think, as a community, are very comfortable with agile combat employment. So if we're told and tasked to go to a, a remote location and a remote spot and stage there and here's your mission, like, copy. We can do that uh, in a way that I think some other fighters, based off of just their maintenance or their logistical train, might not be able to support. Yeah, so talking about a little bit more about your current role here at USAFA, developing not only officers but pilots. You spend mm-hmm. a lot of time down at the airfield. First off, just to hit on the AOC part, did you yeah. like want to come back? Did you always know you were going to come back as an AOC? If so, why? If not, why? So I got in a lot of trouble, and the punishment was to come back to be an AOC. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> no. Uh-huh. So I wanted to be an AOC. Now, I don't think I knew I wanted to be an AOC when I was graduating from this place. I think I was ready not to see this place for a while, you know, in 2008 as I drove away. But at some point, you know, in reflecting back on my experiences here and all the awesome opportunities and, um, you know, the, the lessons that I've been able to, sh- to learn and experience, right, wanting to share those. I mean, John, you know this. I love talking about flying. I love talking about the, uh, the CAF, the Combat Air Forces, right? I, I encourage, I push cadets to, to kind of, um, you know, check their own limiting beliefs on, on, on what they think they can do and capable of and, and, and push them towards at least keeping options open and considering, you know, 
in considering flying fighters because I think it's awesome. Um, I love talking about uh, joint spouse because that's been my relationship, you know, from meeting my then girlfriend, now wife as a cadet in 2005, right? So fast forward to 2023 and, and, and all the, we'll say, compromises and communication and sacrifices it took to maintain a relationship with another officer who flies a different aircraft. That piece is important and trying to mentor, right? And share that perspective with cadets. And then when and where I can, just trying to be a, trying to be a decent uh, example and role model for, uh, for the officer corps. So those are some goals. I wanted to be an AOC. Every AOC that's here with the exception of maybe one or two rare cases are volunteers. And this is their first choice. Like people want to do this and they want to come back and, and, and find ways to give back. So uh, I'm very lucky and blessed to have had this job for the last two years. So how much time do you spend on at the airfield typically? Well, if you're, uh, you're, if you're in Viking 9 and you're one of my cadets, you might say too much because they're like, where is that guy? I typically fly twice a week. You know, that's kind of the, we'll say the, the handshake or the contract with the airfield two sorties a week, about eight times a month. But that ends up meaning if I fly, you know, I flew this morning uh, with one of our three degrees, which was awesome. I love flying with our cadets um, or any other cadet that comes up and shakes my hand and says, let's go flying. But if I fly, it takes me out of the office for about half a day. By the time I get down to the airfield, mission plan, brief, step, fly, debrief, grade sheets, transit back up, that's about four hours. It's about half my day. And so if you think about it, w- one day a week, I'm pretty much out of the office flying. Um, and I apologize to no one for that. Uh, I you, do, to be fair to you, yeah. you have a lot of late nights in the squadron. Like, that's, you make up for it. And, and I know not everybody stays past sure. 445. Yeah, that's true. And I will say, like, I don't, I don't always love, you will say, uh, setting that, you know, example, because I don't want you all to think uh, – the, the only way to do it is, is to stay late. But there are times, I mean, you know, it's a, sometimes it's a one-for-one trade-off. If I missed four hours of my job as an AOC, which, by the way, is always going to be my primary duty. First and foremost, I'm nine's AOC. And then secondary, when and where I can support, I'm also an instructor pilot in the T-53. But you're right. There will be days where I stay later to try to uh, make up for it. And um, my wife and I have very open and honest conversations, sometimes one-way conversations, uh, about uh, my choices <laughs> uh, based off of that. But for people and cadets that are motivated to go fly, this is something that I always, like, I try to mentor them on. You know, I'll have some of the Vikings swing by my office and be like, sir, I tried to come by this morning. You weren't here. I'm like, I know. I was at the airfield. Uh, what do you want to do? Uh, what job do you want to do in the Air Force? And I go, I want to fly. I'm like, come on in. Let's talk about this. You you will spend your career balancing these two worlds and lives. And when you're younger as lieutenant and captain, it's mainly just flying, which is awesome and great. But when you get a little bit older, major lieutenant colonel, now you have like a true job that is not flying. And you got to do both of them well. You can't be terrible at, at one of them just to be great at the other one, right? So there's a balance there, and it's not always easy to strike. So um, as someone who's had the chance to go down and be part of the powered flight program down there. I had a great experience. I've got some outside flying experience myself, but um, uh, what do you think that contributes to, especially the cadets who haven't had a flying experience before? Yeah, I like this question because um, the cadet you're talking about was me, Cadet Rudder, uh, from 04 to 08. I graduated from this place with three glider flights to my name. That was my experience. Uh, leaving here and going to pilot training, right? 
And uh, boy, that wasn't that wasn't a lot of uh, preparation. That wasn't good. Um, we'll say basic airmanship fundamentals. That just didn't go well, right? That was a made for a very steep learning curve when I showed up at at IFS uh, at that time, introductory flight screening, and then at UPT. And so I think when and where I can try to find ways to get cadets connected to flying programs at the airfield or um, get them hours through the aviation club and discovery flights or go take them down to our simulator here, I'm going to always try to do that, right? And my whole mindset is like, do it better than I did, right? If I went back and did it all over again, I would have tried to maybe get a job uh, as a soaring IP, right? I think that is an incredible advantage, you know, for people going to pilot training. Aviation club, I don't know if it existed when I was a cadet. I don't, maybe it did. I didn't know anything about it, but just touch points like this, talking about flying, right? Finding people opportunities, going and simming with cadets, it's huge. Um, I mentioned at the start of the podcast, I didn't know if this whole flying thing was going to be for me. So when I was a four degree, um, I got a backseat Viper ride at Kirtland, right? I'm from Albuquerque. And so I went down there and just asked the Flying Tacos, great name, uh, if I could fly with them. And I didn't know anything. I was literally one semester in as a freshman here. I showed up to the squadron. I had, like, my scarf on. I didn't know anything about what flying was or a fighter squadron. And it was like that scene out of the Sandlot where he tells them to burn the hat. They, like, welcomed me in the squadron. And they're like, you got a fireplace? Yeah, put that thing in it. Put, <laughs> put that scarf in it. I remember I'm like 18 years old. My mom had to go to the to the liquor store and buy a, a bottle or a handle of Jack Daniels for me to give as a gift because I wasn't 21 yet. Right. But I'm like, I, I think I want to do this. Right. I'm hungry. I'm going to go find an opportunity. And I'll tell you the first 30 minutes of that sortie. Incredible. Unreal. We took off, climbed out two ship uh, surface attack type ride. It was the most amazing thing. And then, in a, I don't know, probably about the 30 or 40 minute mark, I, my body caught up, you know, my body and my brain caught up or sorry, my, yeah, stomach caught up with the rest of my body. And they were like, nah, uh, uh, bro. <laughs> and, uh, I just threw up all over myself. Uh, I remember feeling absolutely miserable. You know, my head was leaning against the, the, the canopy and number two, the, the, the wingman had joined up. And I didn't know it at that time, but he's like right in fingertip on us. And I look over at him and he's like, yeah, clapping. Good job. And I'm like, I hate you. And I hate this. And I never want to fly because I felt terrible. Right. And then a little bit of time elapsed. I had three glider flights. They didn't go very well either. It was like that January first go. The weather was t a terrible bumped all around. We got canceled multiple times. It just wasn't fun. I didn't feel great. And I was like, maybe I should. Maybe these are signs that I shouldn't be a pilot. And then whether, you know, being stubborn or stupid, I was like, I'm still going to do it. And I put pilot down and no regrets. It's been incredible. I, I'm just so thankful that I, that I pushed forward with it. So I talked about the limiting beliefs thing. I think there's a lot of cadets that are like, I don't know if I can do it, right? I don't know if I'm built for it. I don't know if I'm into it. I'm like, we'll go get data points. Right? We'll get you up in the air with a discovery flight. We'll go sim with you. You know, We'll make sure you're enrolled in that airmanship program. Get some data points. Put yourself out there. And don't hold these limiting beliefs about yourself because there's some amazing opportunities out there. Don't sell yourself short. So talking a little bit more about you know the pilot training pipeline yeah. right now, uh, to anybody out there that wants to be a pilot but doesn't know where, where to start, like what piece of advice would you give to them? Yeah. Um, Want to be a pilot, don't know where to start. Uh, when and where you can, you know, pull information, find a mentor, 
right? That's like reach out to somebody and ask a question. I will tell you there are very, I came back to the academy to talk about this stuff, right? Granted, there are a lot of other duties and responsibilities that show up as an AOC. I can't just talk about flying all day, every day. But one of the main reasons I came back to the academy was to be an advocate for the for the A-10 community, to be an advocate for the combat air forces, right? For fighter attack, uh, you know, aircraft. And so reach out, find somebody to talk to. We love, right? In general, pilots love talking about flying and their experiences and their perspective, right? There's very few things I would rather talk about. So find someone who's done it out in front of you and get their perspective. If you can't find someone, listen to some podcasts, yo, right? Like start building some cues and context from, from information that you guys are putting out right here and other, other sources. Um, those are a couple of things I think about right off the bat. There's flying training, right? Is a, is a test, right? The whole thing you're, you're being graded. And so if you think about that, well, we'll back it up. If your goal is to be a pilot, you got to get to pilot training. If your goal is to get to pilot training, you got to commission. And if your goal to commission is to commission, you got to do USAFA, ROTC, or OTS, right? And if your goal is to get in one of those, you got to be decent, right? You don't have to be perfect, but you got to be decent at some stuff, right? Grades matter, okay? Uh, your aptitude and discipline, your commitment to different activities, leadership roles, um, your, we'll say your, you know, physical abilities and prowess there, it all matters. And so try to be excellent. I tell people like, don't be afraid to be awesome. Like push yourself and try to be good or even better than that at the things that you're doing. Keep options open and be competitive. But the entire what the entire pipeline from someone who's in high school all the way to a brand new wingman being checked out, you know, it's a competition, right? You're being graded and evaluated. And you may not always feel like that, but every little every little piece of effort makes a difference. So, it's not for like hey, hey if you want to be if you want the world's chillest job, most relaxing, um, non-dynamic, low-stress job, don't be a pilot. Not a good idea, right? But if you want to find a, a career or community that pushes you, that gets you outside, that is physical in many ways, right? Interacting with an aircraft or the environment uh, that requires leadership, making decisions for your crew, for your formation, Um if you want something that's going to take you all over the world, if you want something that's going to be ops, operational and serving other people, whether protecting them, supporting them, defending them, whatever, well then do it because it's sweet, right? But it's not the, it's not the, it's not the easy path either. But that's why I like it, right? Easy is kind of boring. And I think I like kind of building off of that. Okay, you you want to go to UPT? You want to go fighters right now? Frankly, the odds are you have to go. You have to go to NJEP if you want fighters for the most part right mm, now. Disagree, but uh, but I'll play with you. The, the numbers, yeah. the numbers, yeah, um, and the odds. So, like, if you wanted to go to NJEP, what's the best way for people to separate themselves from their peers and be competitive for that selection? Okay, so I'll say this with the uh, with the experience of someone who did go to NJEP and then was an instructor there, right? Uh, grateful for the experience. I, I would do it again. Wouldn't trade it. But I also put a caveat on this, and I tell this to all the cadets who talk to me about Injept. I mean, it is not the Holy Grail, okay? Injept is pilot training, right? With some NATO partners, but it, it's pilot training. It doesn't make you special or unique in your abilities. In fact, when when all the new wingmen show up to, to do the A-10 uh, B course, the basic course, uh, I, fl I can fly six months with them, do all their sims with them, do academics, go out and do all their rides with them. At the end of the program, at the start of the program, at the end of the program, I have no idea who the NJEP grads were, and I don't care. Don't matter to me, man. You know, like if you show up 
with a positive mental attitude, uh, a willingness to study and learn the aircraft, right? Some humility, knowing that you're not very good at it, but you're trying to get better. Uh, and then uh, we'll say a goal of not making the same mistakes twice. You're going to be okay. I don't care where you went to pilot training. Getting to NJEP, though, if, you're, if it's a goal and you're trying to go, and these are good goals, right? What goes into it? Half of it's objective. So that's your pick some. And your OPA, right? So basically your grad order of merit, if you will, and your your PIXM. PIXM broken down to flying hours, AFQT, TBAS, lots of acronyms flying around here. Uh, but if you're interested in this stuff, look them up or come talk to me. Um, the other 50% of it, the way we board it here at USAFA is subjective, right? So you're writing bullets uh, that are graded by um, the NJET panel. Who's on the NJET panel? People from the different mission elements that are fighter or bomber background. Okay, so show me that you have that you have uh, demonstrated excellence in these categories, you know, academics, athletics, military, airmanship. Right. Show me that you've demonstrated leadership in those in those areas or categories. How do you stand out? And then we also have this year a personal statement. Hey, I want to go to NJET because. Right. And so hopefully that's helping people kind of cage some of their thoughts and expectations. How can I plan and, and prep for this objectively? Get a better pick some. OK, up your game. Do the best you can on Pixum. Um, every little bit counts. Work on your GPA and your MPA and PEA. Every little, you know, every little advantage um, is helpful. And then start thinking, whether you're a freshman, uh, three degree, two degree, hey, what am I going to put in my application on the subjective side? What makes me stand out in these different categories? You know, why do I think I'm a good candidate for NJEP? I hope that kind of answered your question. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, and talking about pilot training, the backlog, I yeah. think. I mean, the elephant in the room, the backlog in sure. pilot training. A lot of, like, from our perspective, it's like, oh, I'm going to have to wait a year, casual status, or year plus two years. Yeah. But operationally, bigger military, what's the, like, worst effect of the backlog? Yeah, the backlog is, is felt, um, you know, past UPT, right? We have backlogs and, and production delays, if you will, in our B courses, our FTUs as well, our formal training units. What does that mean? It means it's taking longer to get our, our, our wingmen, our new wingmen out to the operational squadrons. And you can, you can infer why that's a problem, right? You need young new wingmen, right, to, to build into flight leads, two-ship flight leads and four-ship flight leads and instructors, Right. And if they're few and far between, at some point, your squadron is is either too old. Right. We just have a bunch of instructors staring at each other. Right. And no new wingmen to bring up through the, the program or system. And then in other situations, in some ways, kind of in the A-10 right now, uh, we've got a younger community. Right. Because we don't have as many FGOs. The implications. I mean, you can we can infer them. Right. It's not good. We're, we're producing fewer pilots than we want to slash need to. Uh, and there's not a. There's not a fix in the foreseeable future. The current Band-Aid is to send less people to pilot training, right? Because we're like, well, it's really backed up. So if we just send less people and then it gets caught up, maybe we can we can get back to the, the semblance of, of normal production. Um, that's concerning as well. It's basically, it's basically saying, hey, this is a, a temporary fix, but if we're overall sending fewer people in the long run, that's going to hurt or sting too. The same thing happened, you know, when I was going through pilot training. From about the 09 to 11 uh, time point, there were just very few fighters that were dropping. Um, a lot of people at Shepard who'd flown T-38s and been successful in T-38. I mean, there were one to two fighters per class at, at Shepard, right? You know, and so there were people that were very qual that were fighter qualified, 
that were dropping RPA, that were dropping C-17s, KC-135s. It was a different time. And then where do you see the, the ramifications? You know, six, seven, eight years later, when all of a sudden your fighter fleet has no FGOs, you know? Oh, my gosh, where are all the majors and lieutenant colonels? Well, we just didn't let them in the door, you know, six or seven years ago. <laughs> so we could definitely see ramifications from that in terms of, you know, the UPT backup and the, and the UPT pipeline. Um, I don't think I answered your question at all. I just did a little, you know, uh, tap dance I mean, around you, it. You, you answered. There was a few points that you addressed there. Okay. Um, so I think you effectively answered well, it. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, so from the other end, yeah. um, as a two degrees, soon to be firsty, yeah. coming up here, looking at um, putting in all those preferences, looking at uh, the NGIPT application soon here, um, that weight's pretty significant for NGIPT right now and uh, pilot training. Um, what would you say about that consideration where um, you might have a better chance, get to have that experience with international counterparts, um, but the other pilot training bases, you're getting to pilot training a year earlier. Uh, what's yeah. what's kind of your... And I'd have to pull some data on this. I think I think I probably say we're closer to about maybe a half year spread uh, between maybe UPT and NGEP start dates. So things to think about. Um, you mentioned the international piece. One of the things I really appreciate about NGEP was the NATO partners that were there. That was cool. You know, as an instructor, I flew with with uh, you know Italians, um, Canadians. Uh, you name it, 14 different partner nations that participate in, in NATO. That was really that was really unique. Um, and as a student, having those instructors was cool too. At any UBT base, there's international students. Um, and so it's not that, you know, INJEPT is unique in the sense that it's the only place that has internationals. You will have international partners that are going through pilot training at all the different bases. Uh, to me, if you had the, if you were competitive for Injep and you had the opportunity to go, I'd still say compete and try to go. If we're talking about starting pilot training a half a year later, in the grand scheme of things, to me that's a drop in the bucket. I know when you're a young lieutenant and you're raring to go, you're like, I want to get started. And I get and respect that. One thing I'll remind you is, you will never, life will never be sweeter, simpler, or less responsibilities than when you're a casual lieutenant. And after four years of this place. A little bit of downtime ain't a bad thing, right? Maybe lets you catch up on some stuff that you just couldn't get a hold of here. Uh, focus on yourself, whether it's some learning, some self-development, you know, fitness, um, some prep for pilot training that you just couldn't get to in this time. Once you start pilot training, it's go time, right? And that, that uh, we'll say, level of responsibility and expectations continues to increase throughout your career. And so... I know a lot of my lieutenants who graduated last year, they're like, sir, I know you keep saying this, but I'm just bored out of my mind and I want to start. And I'm like, I hear you. But uh, once you start and you get going, you know, and that stress and that pressure's on and responsibilities start to increase, you look back fondly on uh, those couple extra months of chilling at casual. And, and think about some of the opportunities. Think of how many people were sending to grad school now out of USAFA. Um, you don't even have to be smart to go to grad school anymore. Uh, you can just, just just raise your hand and apply. I think you get it. Sorry if the dean's listening. I'm sure we're sending very qualified people to grad school. But uh, different than, than when I was going through, um, we we're sending a ton of people to grad school. What an awesome opportunity and a good use of their time. Get an advanced academic degree while they're waiting for pilot training. Money, if you can do that. Um, but even if you don't get a grad school spot, you know, better yourself. Don't be afraid to be awesome. Do some do some stuff during your wait time, during your casual, that you know betters you professionally and personally, and gets you in the right mindset to crush pilot training. All right, 
Final question. Woo. We're going to make this a little bit of a tradition here okay. on the podcast. <laughs> okay. So we, we kind of went away from the A-10. Yeah. But you're pretty passionate about the A-10. Sure. So sell me on why the A-10 is the best plan in the current Air Force inventory. Yes. Correct. Would you like to expand? True. No, I mean, you're not going to meet too many pilots that are like, hey, I hate my plane. It's the worst. My experiences were terrible. I didn't like anybody in my community, and I would never do it over again. Uh, but I hope maybe I carry even a little bit more energy or bias than, than other people that you'll have on your show. Like, I, I love the A-10. I told you guys why I like the A-10. It's the, 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 the plane is, it was built to do close air support, right? And I think there's something to be said for a plane that does, you know, one, okay, one to two to three, but kind of correlated missions, we'll call it, but a single mission, really well excellently right it's i appreciate and respect all our multi-role um you know fighters and, and players out there and they, they bring a lot to the fight but there's something you know i think profound about doing a job and doing it to the best of your ability and better than anybody in the world and that's a little bit that that, that doesn't sound like the most humble thing i could say but i truly think that the the a-10 the the aircraft itself based off of how it was built the weapons it carries, the pilots who fly it, our dedication to that mission um, of the 18-year-old on the ground with a rifle and supporting supporting him, um, that's what makes it uh, so powerful and such a such a bond, but also a, a mission and a community that's that's worth uh, that's worth fighting for and serving in, and and I'm, I've been very grateful to be a part of. So uh, the A-10 will go away sometime. It'll be bittersweet, but until it does, man, we're gonna keep flying it. Uh, we're going to keep employing it. I mean, there's A-10s downrange right now, right, that are flying combat sorties today. Uh, and and so we're going to keep doing our job till the very, you know, until the very end, right, whether it's flying combat missions, training up new wingmen, uh, or just being, you know, the best close air support, combat search and rescue, FAC-A pilots in, in our entire nation. That's what we do. Attack. That's, That's what sell. we say as A-10 pilots, right? It's, it's always a good sell. Attack. Good sell. All right. Are you buying? Are you buying? <laughs> so this is tough for you, uh, John. I know you're trying to close out the podcast. I'll be quick. Um, I tell, you know, I tell even our first D's and, and two degrees, hey, there's absolutely a possibility that you go fly the A-10, and I think it'd be a really cool, unique experience. One assignment, maybe two, probably just one assignment, and then you're probably going to transition to the F-35. And I'm like, there's worse ways or paths to take in life, right, to be kind of one of the very last, uh, you know, purely dedicated close air support pilots and then take some of your talents and perspective over the F-35 community, I think it'd be awesome. So uh, for those uh, cadets that are listening who are getting ready to start pilot training or trying to finish up here and get a pilot slot, uh, I hope to see a couple of you out in the hog. We'll um, we'll do some learning together. I mean, I would. I have no problem dropping the hog. I mean, I had a close relative, Yusuf Grad, who flew the hog yeah. his entire career. I mean, I, the hog, legendary yeah. aircraft, transitioned to the F-35. Yeah. I have no problem with that. Yeah, no questions. Any any f uh, closing remarks? I think I said what I need to say. You guys did a great job uh, interviewing. I'm proud of you. Some good questions, some tough questions that I don't even know the full answer to, but um, tried to shoot you as straight as I could. Um, if nothing else, hopefully people hear a little bit of excitement, a little bit of passion about what you guys are going to do next. It is so easy at USAFA, and I see this as an AOC, and I saw it as a cadet, to get worn down, right, to kind of get beat down. But just everything that's being tasked upon us here and the challenges and stressors of this institution, um, 
that we lose sight of what we're going to go do after it. Guys, it's going to be sweet. You're going to do incredible things, right? You're going to fly uh, aircraft that haven't even been unveiled yet, right? You're going to employ weapon systems uh, with capabilities that we haven't even imagined. Uh, I'm excited for you. Giddy up. Yes, sir. Well, thanks again to Lieutenant Colonel Ryan Rudder for joining us on episode yeah, two of coming. the podcast. As always, um, all these episodes are going to be available on not only YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So you really watch where you learn, but... If you like the podcast, be sure to follow, subscribe, share with friends, um, anybody else that you think this would be informative, and we'll catch you guys on the next one.